You know, Easter Sunday is not meant to be a Sunday of solemn remembrance. That's Good Friday. That's what Good Friday is about, is we remember his death and what he accomplished on the cross. But Easter Sunday is supposed to be a celebration that Jesus came to earth he died on the cross, but he did not remain in the grave. He rose from the dead, conquering death, hell, and the grave. And then he ascended to the right hand of power and is now seated with all authority and all power over everything on earth. So if you're used to a solemn Easter service, get ready. Get ready. Because we are going to celebrate Jesus. In John 11, we find a story of a man named Lazarus who has died, a friend of Jesus who has died. And in the story, it tells us that Jesus, he makes his way to the town where Lazarus is as he, after he hears that Lazarus is sick and he shows up four days late. And then he comes, as he's coming to the town, one of the sisters, Martha, comes to him and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said, he'll rise again. And she responded, well, yeah, Jesus, I know he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He was resurrected, but he is the resurrection. That means he has all authority over what is dead. Yeah. What is alive came through him, but what is dead is something that he still has authority over. And he has the authority and the power to raise the dead things in your life and bring them new hope. It is because he came out of his tomb that we can come out of the tombs that we live in. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you that you came to earth as a baby, that you lived among us, lived a perfect life among us, being tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, and that you weren't content just living and teaching us, but that you died for us. And then you rose again. So God, I pray as we go into the service and as we ponder these words, and as we look at the story of what you accomplished, God, let us receive the love you have for us. Because this is the greatest love story. Let us see and receive your love, God, this morning. Pray this in your Amen, 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 amen. All right, you guys can take a seat. Well, good morning, church, and happy Resurrection Day. You know, if this is your first time here at Gateway, first of all, welcome. Thank you for joining us. We're so happy that you are here. But my name is Darian Shafar. I am the lead pastor designate. I know it says associate pastor on the screen that is inaccurate as of a month ago, but I'm the lead pastor designate here at, at the church, and, and, and we're so glad that you decided to come out uh, to our Easter service because, 
You know, once a month here at Gateway, we like to do something a little bit different. We like to do something special, and we have these big Sundays once a month where we celebrate different things. Families, mothers, we watched a video about Mother's Day coming up. And, but Easter is one of the biggest celebrations of the year. See, there's a reason that there's flowers on all the tables and candles and there's free food and drinks out in the foyer. There's a reason that after the service, we're going to have kids' activities and all kinds of fun things. And it's not just because we want people to have fun. That's part of it. We want to build community, but it's because we want to celebrate. We want to celebrate what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And, 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 you know, Easter Sunday, is, is, it's a Sunday where we're not just ha- celebrating a happy coincidence. We're not just celebrating uh, good weather or the promise or hope that maybe it'll eventually stop snowing. But we are actually celebrating an unbelievable reality that God stepped into human history. He came as a child who was born and walked among us, and then he died and rose again. We're celebrating Jesus. And so this morning, I don't really have anything super profound or, or insightful or deep to say. I just want to preach the gospel. I just want to preach the good news of Jesus. So I want to talk to you this morning from this idea that we are all marked. You know, a couple years ago, my wife and I, we were watching this show, um, and it was the show that, I don't know, some of you might have heard of it. It was a show called Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Any fans? A few fans? Okay. So for those of you who don't know the show, it's basically a sitcom. It, it has no, like, deep emotional value to your life except to just, you know, relax and chill and laugh. Um, and so, as a pastor, you kind of need to do that sometimes. Um, and, and so it, it's one of those shows that's just enjoyable. And so we were watching the show, and at one point in the show, they introduce... This, this character named CJ. And essentially how this show works is it's following these police officers who work in the NYPD and, uh, and they work at the 99th Precinct in Brooklyn. It's just funny and lighthearted and, and silly. And at one point, they introduce this character named CJ or Captain Stentley. And the whole point of this character is really to show how dumb CJ is. He's just comedic relief. He's just silly. And they have him as the captain of this precinct, but the whole time they're just trying to show, this guy's terrible. He sucks at his job. He has no idea what he's doing. He'd rather play guitar in the break room and, and distract people from their jobs than actually do any police work. And, and they're just trying to prove that CJ is, is this idiot in a, in a police uniform. And one of the ways that they do it in one of these episodes is, is they show us that his favorite saying is, that's going to leave a mark. And, you know, that's a saying that we use when somebody gets hurt. Like, you get hit in the face with a baseball, people will be like, ooh, that's going to leave a mark. Or, you know, when somebody hurts us or something bad happens in our life, we're like, ooh, that's going to leave a mark. But in the show, to prove how dumb this guy is, they showed him using it in ways that didn't really make sense. He'd be eating a bowl of soup and be like, ooh, that's going to leave a mark. Really? Bowl of soup? Or someone would offer to do a nice thing and help him when he'd lost a bag of cocaine, and he's like, that's going to leave a mark. Okay? Or he's getting a hug from two other police officers. He's like, oh, that's going to leave a mark. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. It's, 
And the show is painting him as, as this guy who's so stupid that his favorite saying is, that's going to leave a mark, and he doesn't even use it right. But, you know, as I was preparing this message and I was thinking of this idea of marked, what I realized is that that saying actually has a shred of truth. You know, we might not think that eating a bowl of soup is going to leave a mark, but I promise you, you eat too much soup and it will leave a mark. Or... We might not think that a hug will leave a mark, but if your mom or dad never hugged you and never showed affection, it'll leave a mark. You see, we are all marked with good things and with bad things. We're marked by things that we have done, marked by things that others have done to us. We are marked by something, by someone, by ourselves. We are all struggling with these marks, that, these things that we have done and these things that have been done to us that have left a mark. And, and, and often we like to go through life pretending we don't have a mark, but you know the things that are on your phone that if I had your phone right now, you'd be like, ooh, don't go there. You know the marks you wake up in the morning with. You know the shame you feel waking up in the morning feeling like a foreigner in your body because nobody ever told you that you were born in the image of God and that he, when he made you, you didn't make a mistake. You know the drive you feel to succeed in business and to, have, to, to just accomplish something in order to prove something to someone who doesn't care about you. You know the shame and anxiety and fear you have when going to work worrying, well, is this the day where I screw up? Is this the day where I fail? See, we are all marked. And the reason I know this is because I also am marked. I'm marked by the images I saw as a kid that shaped how I viewed women and sexuality through, through my teenage years and into my relationship with my wife. Marked by the insecurity and fear of failing to achieve everything I feel I should be able to achieve. Marked by this, this drive within me that I fight against and I know is not true, but, but that tells me that if I don't do things that make people like me, they're just going to leave. See, we are all marked by our actions and by others' actions. And what happens is the marks that we experience actually begin to affect our lives. They affect how we see ourselves, how we see others, how we treat ourselves and how we treat others. And we try to hide them, but they're there. And they begin to define us. So when you're at work and... A coworker makes a mistake that makes you look bad, and you get so angry at them. How could you make me look bad? You start cussing them out. You think afterwards, you think, well, that's not going to leave a mark, but it will. On you and on them, leave a mark on your relationship. And if you're like me, it'll leave a mark of guilt. Ooh, I shouldn't have said that. Or, when you spend Saturday nights out on the town on your back with a different stranger for looking for a moment of pleasure, society tells us that won't leave a mark, but it will. The guilt, the shame, the loneliness, the hopelessness, this dissatisfaction with life. What is so wrong with me that no one will stay with me more than one night? Will I ever find the right person? It leaves a mark. But it's not just an issue for you know, single people, you're going to trip me, dear. <laughs> Wife's trying to kill me. But, you know, it's not, a, it's not just an issue for single people. It's, 
So if you're married and, you know, you and your wife haven't spent a lot of quality time together recently, you know what I mean. And the addiction you dealt with as a kid rears its ugly head and tells you, well, if she's not going to take care of your needs, maybe you should just go to those websites that helped you as a kid. And you're like, yeah, I'm justified in doing that. I'm justified in, 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 in going to those sites and taking care of my needs because she's not doing it, and that's going to be okay, but that leaves a mark. The shame, the guilt... Even if it remains a secret, the brokenness that it creates in your relationship with your spouse, it leaves a mark. And sometimes it's not even things that we do, but it's things that others do to us that leave a mark. It's the people who reject you and neglect you who, who leave a mark. It's the bullying you faced in school from, from kids who picked on you because you were different and beat you up. And the teachers who ignored it. You saw me getting hurt, but you ignored it. You, did, you were supposed to protect me, but you didn't. It's the brother who promised to be there for you, to help you deal with the abuse of parents, but then the second he turned 18, he left. It leaves a mark. Or even deeper, it's, it's the people who leave you, who should have been there to take care of you, but leave. Why, Dad? Why did you leave me? You knew I needed you, you knew I wanted you to teach me how to drive, how to tie a tie, but you left in a moment. Went out to get a gallon of milk and never came back. It's not just families. Pastor, you said you cared about me. But all you wanted was another butt in the seat. You just wanted my money. You just wanted my time. You just wanted me to serve. You were just padding your stats. You didn't care about me. Leaves a mark. Mom, why? You knew that guy was dangerous. And yet you still let him near me. You knew what he had done to other kids, but you still let him near me. And then when he hurt me like he hurt them, just covered it up. It leaves a mark and it covers us. It wraps us. It marks us. It leaves this residue on us. And some of these marks have been present for 5, 10, 25 years in your life, and they are still there. So you see, everything we do and that others do to us leaves a mark. And the bad things we do and the bad things others do to us leave us with these marks that leave these deep-seated, deep-rooted psychological issues in, in our lives that carry forward in our life. The shame and guilt, the fear and anxiety, the loneliness and hopelessness that it leaves with us. And, and a lot of us like to pretend it's just not there. But on the inside, we all look like this. Marked. Wrapped in burial clothes. Stuck with things that we hate about ourselves. Stuck with things that we're ashamed of. Wishing we could be free. Dealing with anxiety and uncertainty and, and, and broken relationships and unforgiveness and fear. And so we want to deal with these things. And what society tells us we need to do to deal with these things is simple. It's twofold. One, find something that makes you happy and do that. And two, just ignore the marks. It's a cover-up. And so we go through life, and we're trying to find things that make us happy, and so we turn to addiction. This will make me happy. 
this will cover up, this will make me feel something. We turn to, to drugs and alcohol and pornography and even other addictions that we don't like to talk about because anything can become an addiction if you do it too much. And we think this will cover me up because this will make me feel good for a moment, but it doesn't do anything. It just leaves you worse than before. And then we think, well, I got to cover this up somehow, so I should just do a lot of good things, right? I should just do a lot of good things. This will make me feel good. Yeah, I'll, I'll serve the poor. Oh, yeah, that's good. See, my marks aren't visible anymore. Yay. And we come and we worship God like this. Oh, I'm perfect. Marks are still there. And then we think, well, if I can just achieve the perfect life, if I can just get the good house, the good family, the nice car, the good job, just get more money, more power, more fame, then I'll finally be happy, and then that'll just cover up all my marks, and then I'll just look good, and this will be great, and everyone will think I'm perfect, but just look ridiculous. And the thing with searching for money and power and fame and that perfect life is the that psychologists tell us that the second you reach that goal that you had set, you're going to find the goalposts have moved. The second you move into the dream house, you're going to be comparing it to the one down the street that's worth $500,000 more. You're going to be like, oh, I wish we had done that in our house. Wish we lived in that house. And so we're all in search of a perfect life where we're not where we're free from the consequences of our actions and where we're free from the marks that have, uh, that have dealt, uh, been dealt to us and the shame that others have put on us and, and where we don't feel guilty and ashamed and where we just are happy and alive and where our actions no longer negatively affect us. But you know, the reality is that all of this is vanity because there's nothing you can do on your own to ever cover up or hide these marks. Counseling helps. Don't get me wrong. But you can never truly be free of these marks on your own. See, the reality is that all these consequences, all these marks that we deal with are something that the Bible calls death. In Romans 6.23, it says the penalty of sin is death. Now, sin being the wrong things that we do and so the penalty of the bad things we do is death. And, and I think in our society, we tend to read this with a, just kind of like a monotone lens looking at it. And we, because in our society, when we think of death, we typically think of one thing, and that's to be physically dead. But in this verse, it's not just talking about physical death. When it says the penalty of sin is death, what it's saying is the penalty of sin is physical death, yes, but also spiritual death, which means separation from God. Not that when you sin, God is like, ooh, oh boy. Oh, nope, nope. Not that he's moving away. But that he's standing there, arms open wide, and when we sin, we're backing away. We're creating this distance. And then on top of that, penalty of sin is physical death. It's spiritual death. And on top of that, it's also something I like to call emotional death. Which is the consequences of our actions in the here and now, the shame, the guilt, the unforgiveness, the fear, the anxiety, the depression, the loneliness, the hopelessness, the deception, the, the self-hatred that we feel. It's the emotional death. And see, the things we do to ourselves, they cause us 
physical death, spiritual death, and emotional death. And the things that others do to us also can cause us that same emotional death. But ultimately, the penalty of our bad actions is, is, is death. And we can struggle all we want against these grave clothes, and we can struggle and try to get rid of them, and we can cover them up with things so that we can look good, but they will always be with, there with us unless we can come out of the tomb. In John 11, we find a story of, of Lazarus, of Jesus and, and one of his friends, Lazarus, and and as the story goes, even before what we have up on the screen here, Jesus is just hanging out with his disciples, and, and Lazarus' sister sent word to him and say, Lord, the one whom you love is dying. Which is to say, God, Jesus, your friend, the guy you really like, you've stayed in our house, you've ate our food, you really like Lazarus, he is a good friend of yours, you love him as a friend, he's dying, come quick. Because we think you can heal him. And then the story goes that Jesus waits two days. And then when he shows up, he's four days late because Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And those four days actually are interesting because they're actually a little bit significant to the culture at the time. Because you see, in that culture, they believed that for three days... Someone could be resurrected because you would die, your spirit would kind of hang out around the body, and after three days, your spirit's like, okay, I'm not being resurrected, and you'd leave. So for three days, it's easy to raise somebody from the dead, but after three days, no, that's it. And really, contextually, why this was the case was because they didn't have good doctors who could tell if somebody was alive or dead. And so if you were in a coma, and they thought you were dead, they'd bury you. And... If you woke up within those three days, he was raised from the dead. Yay! But after three days, if you didn't wake up from your coma, you would have died of dehydration anyways. He was dead. Just contextually interesting. And Jesus shows up late, four days late. There's no hope. And, and, and he's outside of Bethany, the town where Lazarus lived. And, and one of the sisters, Martha, hears that Jesus is coming. Hears that he's here. And she comes to him and she says, Lord, if you had been here. How many of you have ever prayed that? Or said that to God? God, if you had been here, I wouldn't have had to go through those things. If you had intervened, I wouldn't be dealing with the shame. If you had only been there for me. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. God, if you'd been there, I wouldn't have had to go through that messy divorce. If you'd been there, I would not have had to deal with that shame from those images I saw as a kid. If you had been there, I would not be dealing with these lies that I believed about my worth and about who I am and all these grave clothes that are wrapped around me. If you had been here, all would be better. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. She's like, yeah, 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 Jesus, I know he'll rise again. The last day, the resurrection on the last day, which is to say, I know that God's going to come back and everyone who's dead is going to rise and he's going to separate the good from the bad and the good are going to go to heaven and the bad are going to go to hell and that's just how it goes. I know he's going to rise at that point. I'll see him again. Well, that resurrection doesn't really help me right now. And Jesus responds, I am the resurrection and the life. 
And, you know, it's interesting to note that when Jesus makes this statement, he doesn't say, I can resurrect Lazarus from the dead. I have the ability to bring people back to life. He doesn't say any of that. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, which is to say that I have authority over what is dead. John, te- John 1 tells us that nothing in the world was created apart from him. Everything that was created came through him. And what was created through him was life. And the life was the light of the world. He has the authority over what is dead. Just to say, I am the source of life. And it doesn't matter what is dead, whether it's dead physically, whether it's dead spiritually, whether it's dead emotionally. I have the power to resurrect what's dead. And he says, those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. And I want to be clear here because we can get caught up in that last part of the verse. When he says, those who believe in me will never die, we're not talking physical death. Because the reality is that a lot of people who believe in Jesus die every year. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that these mortal bodies of ours cannot carry the weight of the glory that God has for us in heaven. What is mortal must put on what is immortal, and what is perishable must become imperishable. So these physical bodies will die so that we can receive what God has for us. But what Jesus is promising in this moment is, is what, is, even though people may physically die, he can raise them to life. And he's promising especially that even people who are spiritually dead, he will resurrect them if they believe. And also, he is the God of resurrection. He can resurrect us from our emotional death. But you see, he doesn't just make this claim and then not back it up. Later in John 11, it says, And then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there's a stench because he has been dead four days. It's like that room in your house that when guests come over, you don't want them to go into. Because it's like, oh, that's where I shoved all the garbage. That's how I cleaned up my house. They just put it in the spare room. Jesus, you're, no, no, don't go in that room. That's where my grave clothes are. It stinks in there. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Did I not tell you that if you believed, I would set you free? That I would raise you from the dead? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I've said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe you sent me. And when he said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. See, Romans 6.23, it says, the penalty of sin is death. But the beauty of this verse is it doesn't stop there. It says the penalty of sin is death, but the very next words in that verse are, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Romans 3.22, it carries this idea forward, saying, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. The penalty of our sins being death. 
For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. You see, we are all like this. Covered in grave clothes, dead in our tombs because of what we've done. We all suffer from spiritual death, the separation from God because of our actions, because of the sins we've done, because of the bad things we've done. And this emotional death, these consequences of our actions that we experience on this earth. But you see, God wasn't content just letting us wallow in our tombs. He didn't want to just leave us and, oh, well, you got yourself in that mess. You better get yourself out of it. So he sent his son to be born and to die and to rise from the dead so that he could restore our relationship with God and set us free from the consequences of our actions. He's calling out to you today, Darian, come out of your tomb. Dave, come out of your tomb. Emily, come out of your tomb. Come out of your tomb. I, you know, I don't know what put you in there. It's greed, lust, addiction, neglect, trauma, pain. I don't know what put you in there. But we all look like this with grave clothes that we can't get free of our own. So God sent his son. So that just... As Jesus rose from the dead, conquering death, hell, and the grave. And just as he raised Lazarus from the dead with a word that he could call you out of your tomb, out of the sin that sentenced you to death and all you have to do to receive it, is believe. So you can't get out of these clothes on your own, but when you believe in Jesus, he will set you free. Now I want to be clear about something. Because belief deals with spiritual death in a moment. But sometimes the emotional death we deal with, we have to go through further healing. Freedom starts with Jesus, but sometimes you have to go through the soul care process. You have to get the counseling. You have to learn to start living a life where you're not just picking up these grave clothes and being like, well, this was more comfortable. You leave that all behind. But true freedom begins with belief. So if you're here this morning and you've never decided to follow Jesus before. I want to give you that opportunity this morning. If you're here and you've been a Christian for a long time, this message isn't as applicable to you. Maybe you're dealing with the the consequences of your actions still and you need that freedom. I would encourage you to go and get that freedom. Get the counseling. Join Soul Care. Get engaged in what God wants to do in your life. But if you're here today and you have never come out of your tomb, I want to give you an opportunity this morning. See, Jesus has the power to change you, to transform you, to make you new. Jesus took me from being a liar, from being impatient, from being addicted to pornography, 
He took me from being a person who would engage in debates and fights with people just because it was fun. Took me from somebody who was constantly seeking for pleasure over happiness. And he made me new. That's not to say that I'm perfect, because I'm not. Just ask my wife. But that I'm progressing. That I'm working. That I'm working out my faith and striving for that true freedom. And it's all because Jesus called me out of my tomb. So if you're like me and you want to experience that new life, you want to come out of your tomb, what I want us to do is if I can get everyone to just bow your heads and close your eyes right now. Give a moment of privacy for everyone who's around you. In a moment, I'm going to count to three. And if you want to give your life to Jesus, all I want you to do is slip up your hand and put it right back down. Nobody's looking around. There's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to worry about. Nobody's going to judge you. But when I get to three, just slip up your hand and put it right back down. One, God loves you. We love you more than you could ever know. Two, your life will never be the same. Three, if you want to believe in Jesus, just slip up your hand and put it right back down. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Hands going up all across the room and online as people are coming home. If I can get us all to stand together right now. You can open your eyes as you stand. I just want us to pray this prayer together. This is a prayer that's known as the sinner's prayer which is a prayer that churches have used for centuries for people who chose to follow Jesus. It just is a confession of faith. And so a moment, I want us to all pray this together, whether you've been saved for 30 years or you've been saved for two moments. I want us to pray this together because nobody in this church prays alone. This is a community. So let's pray. One, two, three. Lord, For too long I have lived in the tomb, suffering from the consequences of my actions. I know that I am a sinner and that I need your forgiveness and help to come out of my tomb. This morning, I choose to believe that you came, died, and rose from the dead just for me. Today, I turn from my sins and I choose to trust you and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, let's give God a shout of praise because people just came to Christ. You know, the Bible tells us that when one person comes to Jesus, there is a party in heaven. When one lost sheep comes home, there's a party in heaven. So if you're excited about what God did this morning, let's give him a shout of praise. Woo!